Welcome to the SOM Podcast. I'm your host, Bridget Chapman Lewis. Today, we'll be discussing defund the police, the Black Lives Matter movement, and social justice. We also have two illustrious guests. One, Tim Curry, and two, T.O. Hardiman. I'll give you the bios on them in a little while. However, I do want to uh, pay tribute to the ones that have gone on and that have been killed by police um, in this movement um, that we are protesting and what's going on in society at large in regards to social justice. We'll start with Breonna Taylor, an emergency medical technician who was at home asleep when police carried out a no-knock warrant and shot her eight times. Tatiana Jefferson, a pre-med graduate student who was shot as she was babysitting her eight-year-old nephew in her mother's home. Botham Jean, an accountant who was fatally shot as he was eating ice cream in his apartment by an off-duty police officer who said she mistakenly thought it was her apartment. Tamir Rice, a 12-year-old boy who was fatally shot in the park after someone reported that he had a gun. Eric Garner, a Staten Island man who died after a police officer put him in a chokehold. Garner repeatedly said, I can't breathe. And then there was George Floyd, in which a police officer held his knee to his neck for nearly nine minutes. These are the black people who have recently been killed by police officers and has called the Black Lives Movement up and live and um, has called for a defunding of the police. So what we wanna understand better is what is defunding the police? What is the Black Lives Matter movement all about? And other social justice issues and or concerns. So let's start uh, announcing our guests, uh, Tim Curry. Tim Curry holds a BA in criminal justice from the University of Illinois at Chicago. In 1985, he became a police officer and then a police chief and served for 28 years before retiring from the force. He's married with five school-aged children and, as I understand it, a recent graduate of Annapolis. T.O. Hardiman, Mr. Cease Fire, is how T.O. is known. Uh, T.O. works in the trenches in violent communities and underserved communities across the globe. But more importantly, his work in Chicago had decreased crime, uh, and that hadn't been done for decades. Um, he is the founder of Violence Interrupters, and T.O. has also run for public office as a gubernatorial candidate. So these are our guests today. Welcome, Tim, and welcome, T.O. Thank you for having me. Absolutely, absolutely. Tio will be joining us a little bit later. He's in a neighborhood now attending a funeral um, of an activist that was very, very prominent in Chicago. So um, he'll be joining us a little bit later. But what I do want to um, uh, let you guys know out there, our audience, is that our sources uh, for this podcast are, will be coming from USA Facts, the Brookings Institute, which is a not-for-profit public policy organization, and The Dispatch, which is a conservative online publication. 
And so understanding uh, Black Lives Matter movement and understanding the police and, and defunding the police is very important, which is why our two guests today are very, very important. Again, T.O. really understands the streets and what's going on in different communities across the globe, not only in the United States, um, but Tam also understands law enforcement and our criminal justice system and uh, policing. So with that said, I wanna give some background on how the police are actually funded, okay? Our local police departments are uh, funded as such. 68% of government funds allocated for policing uh, go towards these local police departments and they receive funding from a variety of revenue streams, including local public funds, federal grants, fines and fees, forfeitures, and private donations. Police funding is the second largest category of local government spending after education. On average, the United States spends $340 per person per year for public policing for a total of 193 billion in spending. And that was recorded in 2017. So police uh, spending accounts for about 9.2% of all local government spending. And this works out to be about 192,000 per police officers. And that includes part-time employees. There are 137 police oversight entities. So let's look at the agencies overall. Uh, which equates to 100% of all the state and law, local law enforcement agencies. It's about 18,000 agencies together, 17,985 to be exact. Local police account for about 12,501 of those agencies, which is about 70% of the agencies. Municipal police, which are city police departments, they employ 52% of all public safety officers. Municipal police officers respond to many types of local incidents, including violent crimes, property crimes, traffic offenses, public disturbances, such as noise complaints, etc. The states with the highest number of police officers per capita would be the top five states, obviously, California, New York, Texas, Florida, and Illinois. However, the number of officers do not always increase in proportion to the population. So for, for instance, Washington DC has the most police officers followed by New York, New Jersey, Louisiana, and Wyoming. And the nation's capital has an elevated level of security with 6.5 officers to every 1,000 residents, okay? The most police state with a 4.3 and national average of 2.8 officers for every 1,000 residents, and that's New York. Okay, so that just gives you a little bit of a snapshot of how policing uh, works according to funding and people and bodies and employees. Okay, so total, there's about 1 million people that work in public safety as officers. 906,000 of those are full-time law enforcement employees and 94,000 are part-time employees, okay? Um, just to give you a little bit of background, in 1838, the, per the first public policing agency was formed and that was in Boston, okay? And that system was formed to protect 
uh, merchants from the public, um, theft, etc. It went on to change in the late 1880s, which included all major cities maintaining public police forces. And so today we have a robust system and we just gave you some of the numbers and approximately 18,000 agencies. But we only have out of those agencies, 137 oversight uh, um, committees, uh, if you will. Now, becoming a police officer is quite another thing. And Tim, I'll have you talk to this, but I wanted to cite some uh, some facts. Um, I looked at Mississippi, I looked at Montana, I looked at Illinois, I looked at New York in regards to requirements of becoming a police officer. So for Illinois and New York, um, it's about 21 years of age. New York is older than 20 years of age. Um, high school uh, GED equivalent. In Montana, it's 18 years old, and in Mississippi, depending upon um, where you are, it could be 18 or 21 years of age, and the equivalent of a GED or high school uh, diploma. Um, we know that in some other areas, affluent areas in the country, they require some associate degree in criminology, some background, a little bit more robust information, um, or, or education in becoming a police officer. Um, I did look at a very rural town where my parents grew up in Mississippi. I was just more or less curious as to what the policing might be like there. And um, it was almost comical in a sense that it was 18 years of age, um, GED or high school equivalent, but uh, the comedy or the part that I found, which really isn't funny, um, but um, I guess in the grand scheme of things as to what's going on now, um, it makes a lot of sense as to how policing takes force in the different ideologies across law enforcement. They said that just come on in, we'll train you. So that means one or two different things to me. We'll train you our way or we'll train you the real law enforcement way. So it could be left up to perception. So I'm gonna to lean to you now, Tim, and um, just knowing what defund the police is and the Black Lives Matter movement and knowing that Blacks are disproportionately killed at the hands of police officers, that doesn't mean that whites aren't or Asians or Native Americans aren't killed by uh, police officers. It just means that Black people are disproportionately um, killed at the hands of police officers. And so when the Black Lives Matter movement comes up and they say Black Lives Matter, that in essence means that, you know, while we're disproportionately killed at the hands of police officers, please understand that our lives are valuable and that they matter as well. And so sometimes in the definition, which could be left up to the perception of individuals, it can be distorted. So then you've got the all lives matter and the blue lives matter, and you've got all these things uh, coming out against the Black Lives Matter movement, but the Black Lives Matter movement is simply stating that 
Black people are disproportionately killed at the hands of police officers, and there's got to be something done about it from a reform um, perspective, as well as a criminal justice, a social justice perspective. There's got to be something done about it because it's not right. So with that said, I think I've talked a lot about this particular topic. I'm going to hand it over to you, Tim. And if you could just give us your perspective on uh, defund the police, the Black Lives Matter movement, as well as policing and what you've seen in, in your um, career. Okay, thank you. I uh, just wanna work backwards from the last thing that I heard you say. Um, they accept police officers at you know 18 and over per se, and they say, come on in, you know, we'll train you. Uh, what you said is correct they on both ends they will train you their way and it's necessary because every municipality has a unique way of policing and serving the community and when they say come on in and we'll train you they also mean that they're going to send you to a police academy that will teach you the proper ways of policing now we know sometimes after they get out of the police academy they go to an fto or field training officer and Sometimes a field training officer may say, further book away, I'm going to show you how it really is on the street. And to some degree, that is also functionally correct, because uh, what is generally stated in the academy and in the books, per se, it's different on the street. And I say to many, I ask many people when they, they criticize what we do as police officers, I, I ask them, what do you do for a living? So they'll say, well, I'm a cook, or I'm a carpenter. Or I'm a doctor. And so my retort to them is, I have no idea what you do. So it takes being in the role of a police officer to know what that is about. And we face many different circumstances. Uh, case in point, when everybody's running away from something, a police officer, whether it's out of a sense of courage or duty, they have to run towards it and, and deal with that. So a lot of people don't understand. Mm -hmm. As far as it relates to uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, there have been some violent, many violent encounters with citizens, between citizens and police. Um, some of those encounters, uh, let's, you know, I have to sit here and be truthful. I'm African-American. I wasn't always a police officer, and now I'm a retired police officer. And, and I've seen things from, let's say, three different sides of the fence, okay, if you can say that. Um, one of the issues that I find disturbing is is that the interactions for the most part did not originate without a cause for the police to be there. And this is one of the things that we need to teach our, our offspring, how to react when you are stopped by the police, how to react when you're in public, and what it, what it looks like when you walk around, uh, let's say for instance, with your pants hanging down off of your waist, uh, things like that. So our people's seem to be found in a situation that may or may not have been caused by their actions, but now you're there and what do you do? Um, on, the, on the flip side, police officers in general need to be able to understand the nature of human beings. Um, this is why it's important to have higher education if possible. When you hire a new police officer, you look for people who have, let's say 60 credit hours or BA. Not that it's necessary, but you have to remember, these are 
kids. When I came out of college, I was still a kid per se. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'm in charge of affecting other people's lives. At 21, 22 years of age, I haven't had children. I haven't owned a car. I haven't owned a house. What do I know? But yet, I'm trying to tell people that are 40, 50, 60 years old how to live life. It's a difficult job to do. And we learn along the way. No doubt. Um, I completely get that and understand that. And I'll give you an instance, a real life instance, which is why this particular podcast is so near and dear to me, because we've got to have reform. We've got to get folks understanding how to police, because some of these officers are so young that they don't really understand the world at large, let alone the environment that they're now thrust in. So if they aren't trained properly, they're left to their own, um, to their own judgment a lot of times to do what they believe is right. And that's where I think we get into all of these quagmires in, in the system. Um, is there systemic racism? Absolutely. There are some people out there that are just rotten to the core. There are some police departments that are just rotten to the core and they need incredible reform. But I'll give you this instance. I was driving through an affluent uh, neighborhood and most of the time I'd like to say I'm presentable. Um, I don't look, um, you know, a hot mess in a uh, pedestrian term. Um, so I'm driving, I have a nice car and I have to tent the windows. It's not a limousine tent, which is illegal, but I have to tent the window because of the sensitivity to my eyes. I wouldn't be able to drive otherwise in, in condition. So, um, he pulls me over and, you know, I give him my driver's license, my registration, And he takes it back to his squad car and he takes about 10 minutes. And I'm thinking to myself, I got to get to my appointment one and two, what's taking so long. So he finally comes back to the window and he's got another younger officer with him. And I say, is there a problem officer? And he says to me, your windows are tinted. And I said, I know, I said, um, I have to have them tinted. Uh, This is an SUV and I have just a bad, bad eyesight and the light really bothers my eyes. And he said, this is an illegal tent. And I said, no, I said, here's my papers that says that this is not an illegal, you know, tent. I said, I carry this because, you know, this might happen. And he says to me, well, it's an illegal tent. And I said, well, are you going to give me a ticket or, or what? Because I really have to get to an appointment and I'm not rushing you or anything, but I really need to get to this appointment. And he says to me, um, you know, um, where's your plate in the back? And I said, my plate is on my car officer. He said, oh, it must be the front. He drives around the front and he says, you know what? you don't have a plate on the front. And I said, it's right here in my car. My appointment is to go and get the plate on the front. I said, so, you know, I said I was in a little fender bender and it fell off and I need to get the plate put on. So I'm going to get this whole system replaced. 
And he says to me, okay, I said, but if you'd like to give me a ticket for that, could you please do so? Because after that appointment, I've got another appointment and I'm really running behind now. And he says to me, I don't want to see you back over here again. And I said, you don't want to see me back over where? And he goes, over here, you know what I mean. And I said to him, I, th I don't think you understand. I live over here. And he says to me, um, here, he took, I, he gave me my credentials back. And he said, I'm gonna give you a pass again, but I tell you, I don't wanna see you back over here again. I was appalled. Where is over here? You know, it's a public place. Where is over here? Yeah, where and, are you supposed to go? Absolutely. So not less than two weeks after that, I'm driving again. Same officer pulls me over with the same young cop in the car. And so my husband is with me this time. He pulls the car over and I ask him, I said, so why are we being pulled over? What, is there a problem? And he says to me, your windows are tinted. He gives me the same spiel. And I said, I thought we went through this before. You didn't give me a ticket last time for it. Are you gonna give me a ticket for it this time? And he says to me, um, no, I'm not gonna give you a ticket. But what did I tell you last time? And I said, are you kidding me? You're telling me I can't drive through a public domain, a public street, are you kidding me? And so the other officer was standing there and he was like, just turned beet red. He had not seen this, I guess, before. So he stood at the car and the other officer went and I don't know what he was doing in the car. It seemed like an eternity of whatever he was doing. I guess he was looking for anything that he could find on, on me or my husband because he asked him for his information as well. And I'm like, wait a minute, he's not even driving. He's not driving. Right. It's amazing what happens. So I just simply told this young police officer, I said, listen, I know that you're trying to follow protocols and learn, but this is simply profiling. It's wrong. I have not done anything. This is the second time this officer has pulled me over. I said, don't do things like this. Cause one, it's not right. You know, I said, and two, you're being trained all kind of wrong. If this is what he's teaching you, he's got to teach you proper policing and this is not right. And he looked at me and he said, I understand now. I said, I really hope you do because I think that you're gonna make a great police officer one day, but I don't think you should be doing things like he's doing. And so the other officer saw us conversing. Of course, he comes back. He doesn't give me a ticket. Two weeks later, what do you know? He pulls no. me over again, <laughs> could not believe it. So I just made a joke when he pulled me over. I said, you know what? I'm beginning to think you like me. That was probably the case. <laughs> and I just, I left it at that. And you should have seen the look on his face. And I said, so if either I'm going to get a ticket or I'm not, what's it going to be? And, you know, he let me go. But I mean, that is just outrageous, that kind of behavior. But if I was a hothead, and I would have engaged some other way or started swearing at him or whatever. God knows what could have happened, you know? Right. And he would have had the right to stop you because tenant windows, not having a license plate on the front, at least in Illinois, is against the law. Mm -hmm. And it, it's what you call probable cause to take it to the next level. So uh, it would have given a probable cause to do things like, you know, get your license to see if you were suspended. Uh, maybe even have a look in the car and if there was anything in plain view 
you know, you could be arrested for that. But mm-hmm. yeah, I, I think that ultimately it was something more social uh, going on with him. And you apparently you kill him with kindness at that point. And the other thing too is to, uh, from what you explained, your approach seemed non-threatening. And sometimes we can be threatening in our action and, and demeanor and create an elevated issue with the police. So you're, you just described the proper way to act when you're stopped by the police. You just described it yourself. Right. But, you know, on the flip side of that too, Tim, I think that sometimes, you know, if I had said, you know, damn it, this is the third time you pulled me over. What is going on here? You know, and got a little elevated. I don't think that that should have caused him to take things to the next level. Um, However, it could have. Mm -hmm. And I think that in a lot of instances, people are on edge now. It's just, you know, life is hard. It's just, you know, we're in a day and age now where, you know, our country is incredibly divided. And, you know, we know that we are disproportionately pulled over or killed by police. We are tired. As a people, it's tiring. It's getting really, really old. And, you know, people aren't willing to be so complicit and nice and friendly. You know, people are want to say what they have to say. And if it means, damn it, why are you pulling me over? You know, you shouldn't snatch me out of the car, excuse me, <coughs> or do anything else that violates civility and... <coughs> I'm sorry, proper policing. And so I just think that there's got to be so much more done with training um, in this society and with law enforcement because everybody's on edge. Police are on edge. Citizens are on edge. Movements are on edge. Uh, Left, right, center. It's just we're in a bad place right now. I agree. And sometimes, you know, police officers can move about through their their entire career and seem to be good police officers. And then there can be one instance that would create all kinds of havoc and and drama. So um, uh, the thing is, is that people who are usually bent on that track, things usually happen and unfold that will show who they actually are. And hopefully, you know, at that point, if there's somebody there to hold them accountable, um, we're not going to end this, situ- this situation. It's, it's going to remain forever, but it's how you hold people accountable for it. And uh, uh, communities have a lot to do with uh, having the type of police department that they, they have. So How so? How so? Explain that a, a bit. Okay, so basically police departments are organized and controlled by a board, city council, Mm-hmm. village board of some, some sort, mm-hmm. and they are sitting in those seats because of the votes of the citizens who put them there, right? Mm-hmm. So citizens can get together, and what they need to do is vote, make their voices heard to the politicians uh, and people who run government so that they can set, set the stage as, as far as how a department is going to police a community. Mm-hmm. And so to that point, I think that the Black Lives Matter movement is doing that. I think that that's what the uprising is um, to hold police departments accountable, uh, to hold the government 
accountable, whether it's local government, whether it's federal government, whether it's um, the police department or the law enforcement agency overall, I believe the Black Lives Matter movement just wants greater accountability and reform so that there's equity. You know, if black folks, and I say we because I am African-American black, um, if we are disproportionately killed at the hands of police, there's gotta be something wrong with the picture. And so just going to the defund the police scenario, um, some folks think, like I said before, it's a complete abolishment of the police department. Get rid of the police department, let's go. That's not likely in a lot of instances. I mean, there may be some systems that are just corrupt to the core that need to be uh, reprogrammed, retooled and rehired. Um, but that's far and few in between. And I mean, really far and few in between. Defund the police just means shift some of the money to social programs so that crime can decrease overall and there won't be a need for as much policing to come for disturbances that are aggravating the community or I just saw a guy that didn't have a shirt on, you know, that kind of thing and you pulled him over and it started a whole cycle of violence. So it's just teaching uh, social norms to the community, whether it be in mental health, whether it be in crime, whether it be in youth programming, the defund the police um, uh, term is basically shifting some of the funds from the police departments into those programs. So I just wanted to make that clear. Um, we, we elaborated on funding, how police are funded, and then how and what defund the police actually means. So I understand that that's a double-edged sword also, because in some areas, there aren't enough police. So why would you even defund anything? You need as many feet on the street as you possibly can. But then too, on the flip side of that, what does that mean? I need to hire more police officers. Is it because the ratio is off? It's not 4.3 to 1,000 or whatever, or you know whatever that ratio and that number and balance should be per capita, I'm not certain, but what does it mean to hire more police officers if the law enforcement agencies are not policing properly? So maybe you can elaborate on that a little bit. That's, that's you know, first of all, you put it uh, perfectly as to what your view of defund the police is and what it, what it should mean. And um, I, I would like to extend that issue. Some departments, have actually started in a knee-jerk reaction to do things in a way of defunding the police. Um, unfortunately, they're going to find out the hard way that that's not the proper way to go. Um, recently in Chicago, there was a vote to even have security, which are off-duty police officers taken out of the high schools, taken out of the CPS. Um, that's a really dangerous proposition. And that's where we need the police for security most in the schools with these young people who tend to, to get beside themselves rather quickly. But don't you think, and I'm just hindsight is 2020, don't you think that if there was a shift, because I think that that's a poor use of funds to allocate police to a high school for kids that are wilding out. Um, I think there should be a level of security if you 
allocated some funds or some programming uh, that would include security, then the police could really be left to do what police are there to do, you know, as opposed to going to the high schools and um, looking after kids who are ill-behaved, so to speak. What's your thought on that? It's a necessary proposition. Uh, police officers and security are very well needed in the schools because that's really where things can unravel and get out of hand rather quickly. Um, in many cases, as far as what I know, the police department does not fund the police to be in the schools. The school budget funds that. So it's not taking any funds away or from the police department. Um, and of course, schools, they do have their social workers where they do send the kids to, to be evaluated and screened even before it's necessary for the police to interact with them. Mm -hmm. But uh, it, it is not taking funds away out of the police budget. It's, it comes from, in many cases, it comes from the, the educational budget. Okay. But does that leave a shortage of police on the streets if they're allocated to high schools? Because if you're looking at a, um, a city of, let's say, 2 million people or 3 million people, there's multiple high schools. It's much different than rural America where there may be, you know, one major high school in a given area because the population is not as dense. Um, in your opinion, does that take away from feet on the street, especially in Chicago, where there are hot spots in certain pockets like uh, west side of Chicago, south side of Chicago and certain niche areas? Um, is it taking away enforcement that's needed in those areas while they're at the high school, even though the schools are funding them to be there? No, two things. One is, in many cases, those police officers in the schools are working off duty. So it has nothing to do with protection on the street, you know, at that time. Secondly, having police officers in the school actually lowers the, the crime rate or the ability for crime to really expose itself because now you have a police officer with the intelligence in the school and they can usually talk situations down before it even gets to a level to where the on-duty police has to come. So I think it's, it's a great thing to have police in the schools. Um, I know a lot of communities, I was a police officer working uh, part-time in, in our grade schools as well as the high schools. And our community loves the police in their school. You know, we, we're proactive and we settle things down before it gets to that level. And if something should happen, such as a Columbine per se, you have an armed police officer in the school ready to act. So, you know, I think people need to look at that holistically just to see that defunding the police needs to be uh, changed into a different uh, asking per se. I, I, I could agree with that. Um, um, to, to a great degree. I, I don't like the name defund the police because it's, it gives root to a radicalization of folks that oppose um, the Black Lives Matter movement overall. And it makes it a really evil thing. And it festers. And for those that don't take the time to educate themselves on one, how are police funded? Two, what does the police area look like? People don't take the time to educate themselves. And right. so they're left at a disadvantage when folks um, uh, funnel communication to them. 
they tend to believe whatever is said. So when that term came out, defund the police, I was like, are you kidding? I know things are bad, but we need feet on the street. I have a great respect for law enforcement agents and agencies overall, you know, some are just corrupt and there is systemic racism. And as I say, black people are definitely disproportionately uh, killed at the hands of police officers due to uh, lack of insight and training. So I'm hoping that the police officers can get that training. I'm hoping that there will be intense police reform, criminal justice reform is needed. But um, these social justice issues need to keep the full court press on in the media because everywhere it's, it's seen, the full court press needs to be on because this is insane. We just read some of the names. That's just a few. That's just a few. That's just a few. This has been happening for decades and decades and decades but there's no cameras to record. There were no people that would speak up and say, yeah, I saw that, that wasn't the way it went down. And so people were perishing at the hands of police officers in disproportionate uh, numbers. It was insane. I can recall um, an instance growing up as a young child and I grew up in a suburb not far, well, we grew up in the same suburb, but it wasn't far from Chicago. And it was a diverse suburb, but it became predominantly black. Um, And I guess we we were taught decorum, we were taught manners, we were taught how to hold our head up and be dignified. And we just were taught proper, you know, manners for lack of better word. And so um, my dad, uh, my mom had sent my dad to pick up a catalog order. This is how old we are, Tim. <laughs> and so we're picking up a catalog order um, at Montgomery Wards or Sears. I can't remember. Um, and my dad had a station wagon. And so, uh, you know, all the kids wanted to go. An outing was an outing. So there were four of us in the car. I come from a family of 10. There were four of us in the car and it was the four younger ones. So I'm the youngest. And then there were, um, I had three other siblings. And he parks the car and he goes in to get the order. Now he's out of the car, the car is parked, we're in the back and you don't have to wear seatbelts. You didn't have to wear them at that that time. And this lady comes in back of us and boom, she rams us so hard in the back that our heads hit the big panel in those big station wagons. And I know my head had a cut, I was bleeding, my sister was crying, my brother was like, I can't believe it, we've been hit, call dad. And I said, you can't get out of the car. Everybody said, you can't get out of the car. Because when your parents told you to stay put, you stay put. So we couldn't get out of the car. So the police officers came, the woman was in hysteria. I remember her face to this day. Oh my God, oh my God, that man hit me. That man hit me, oh my God. She's in hysterics and she's lying. And we're like, I mean, it was like we were in a time war. I'm like, are you kidding me? So the police come. And my dad is out on the sidewalk by now, and he's trying to calm the lady down. And it's in that day and age, she was a white woman, he was a black man, you don't get too close, you don't say too much. 
But us kids, we didn't know. And we were like, she is not telling the truth. Lying, saying the word lying was a bad word to us. So we were like, she's not telling the truth. You don't accuse another adult of that. Yeah. They took my dad, handcuffed him, left us kids in a sweltering hot car. It was in the summertime. No windows down. I mean, mind you, he was just going in to come right back out. And I could hear him saying, my children, my children, they put him in the squad car. Do you know how many days they left him in the police station? Days. Three days they left him there. And my mother had the good sense. Well, we had a system back then. If you didn't hear from someone, the whole neighborhood knew about it and they came looking for you. So my uncle came and he found us and got us and took us home. And my mother asked us what happened. And I just remember my dad wasn't home for three days and I, I couldn't believe it. And he says, you know, it'll be all right. It'll be all right. You know, he's in, he used to always tell us not all white people are bad. It'll be all right. Just keep holding your head up and do what you have to do. And that's how we were taught. But, you know, years of that and generations of that, it's a new generation of youth now. And just as, you know, rock and roll was out and everybody thought that that was the devil's music. And then, you know, we dressed really funny with these halter tops and platform shoes and they were like, (laughs) crazy too. Well, now it's a new generation of children. Right. And they're less tolerant. Um, They're very passionate. And so there has to be a way to really reach them through programming, I believe, and also, police need to understand a little bit better um, as to what's going on generationally and right. community-wide. So, you know, that's the, those are just two instances in my life that I can cite where it was just outrageous behavior as to what happened. And it's like, are you kidding me? There are police officers that really act like this and will take someone to jail on someone's word and leave them there in jail for three days, really. Right. <laughs> That's so unfortunate. You know, I sympathize with the situations you were involved in. Fortunately, I didn't have to go through anything like that, but I can see how these kind of things uh, help children form their opinions of the police. And especially in the inner city, you know, you have parents teaching the kids that the police are the devil. And they're not. You know, you have a few bad apples here and there. But for the most part, you got to remember, these police officers, they have families, too. Yes. You know, um, me, you know, I grew up in a large family in town, so it was very easy for me to, uh, let's say, police the right way. Because if I was policing the wrong way, you, you know, it, it would get back when you're in a small oh, yeah. town. It would get back. So, so that Mother was and her friends would understand and know what you did. And there was a price to pay for that. <laughs> and, and, that's, and it helps, too, when... When you're policing a smaller community, you know, I have my feelings about big cities, and that's a totally different thing than a small town in which I policed in. Um, and it's hard for those police officers to get to know the community. They're all strangers to each other there, unless you've been on the beat for, for quite some time. Yeah. Uh, in a small community, everybody knows each other, and it's much, much easier to, to do. Yeah, and that's why I think the suburbs disconnect from urban life they don't even understand it because it doesn't happen where they are. And so policing is quite different 
there. And then when urban folks infuse, get infused somehow or another into suburban life and vice versa, it almost seems as though it's a culture shock, you know, for all parties, law enforcement, the suburbanites, the urbanites, and going both ways, you know, it's just very, very different. Um, so there has to be a greater understanding of what's going on. Um, I just really, really hope that, you know, things will change. I know I'm social active as well, which is why sometimes on my podcast, I hit hard topics like this so that people can really understand, you know, it's not just coming from a Blue Lives Matter perspective and it's all Caucasian paneled and so forth. And, you know, but you're getting the real deal. You're getting the real news, the real talk with real people. And that's important. That is so important and so lost in our media. Media hits on what is hot and what will sell ads and what will pay um, salaries. And they'll stay and oversample a set of people for as long as the ads come in. Right. And that's about money. And it's so ridiculous. Or if they're aligned politically one way or the other. I look at cable news and it's just outrageous. You obviously support one candidate. Whatever. If it's a Senate race, if it's a presidential race, you support that candidate. Can you please be a little bit more objective? And folks think that these are real journalists that have integrity and that are bound by their journalistic oath. They're not. These are people with opinions that are commentators, which are just coming to you with no facts. They're just coming from their gut and citing things that they see, their perspective, their way. And then folks take it as the gospel and say, Well, I love that show because he tells it like it is. He tells it like it is because that's what you want to hear. Yeah, so that's why it's important to attend your council meetings so you know actually what's going on and you can learn the facts so that somebody else doesn't give you their own set of facts. So it's important for you to to read and understand for yourself. I agree. Yeah, that translates into proper voting as well. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I, I thought about this social justice thing and what came to my mind was, was seven things that all start with the letter E. And one of the things is equality. We, we need equality. Yeah. Um, but you can, you can associate equality, let's say, with I give you $100 and I give you, you $100. Okay? But it doesn't end there because now you go into the need for equity. Because if I give one person $100 and they have all the resources that they need in order to make use of that hundred dollars. They get farther. They get farther than the other person who doesn't have the resources or the vehicle to do anything with it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, education. Let's talk about that. You know, our, our kids have poor education since since birth. No preschool, no good preschools, no good uh, grade schools, the high schools. Everything is in the shambles right now and it, we need to have that improved. But now that COVID's hit and the students aren't learning as much and they don't have that social interaction with the teachers, and we're going to have a generation of kids who are going to be behind. Um, Plus, the digital divide is is in the way. We have to be able to to jump that chasm as well. Um, You've got employment. People need a living wage in order to, let's say, stay out of the stores, you know, stealing or what have you, for the most part. Um, 
you know, we need empowerment. We need people yes. at the table, people making decisions. You know, our people, some of our people doing this. Inclusion. Um, inclusion and empathy. What about that? Um, yes. Having a concern for the other person's condition. That goes a long way. Yes. You know, trying to put yourself in their shoes. Mm-hmm. And the last thing that I thought about was elections. Because with elections, that's where you can impact everything else I just said. Yes. Because if we're going to be armchair quarterbacks sitting back waiting to see who gets elected and, and promises to do what, we're going to end up in the same situation that we're in. Absolutely. We, Absolutely. we need to get out and vote. We need to actually support our candidates. We need to screen them and support them. You just don't want to throw anybody in there, but we need to screen them and support them because all too often, you know, we, we chant for a candidate, we send them in the room, and we close the door behind them. Absolutely. And we, need, we need to support them, whether it's stand beside them, uh, even give our donations or what have you to make it possible, because without that, we have nothing. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you, you hit on... Uh, several categories, and I think that all of those are imperative. Um, you know, maybe there needs to be, I know there's a lot of voting initiatives, and I'm just making light of this, but elections matter, you know? Folks need to get out and mobilize and vote. I was absolutely stunned and appalled uh, recently, probably a few months ago. There was a social justice cause that um, a sports um, figure had taken up. And I was so proud of this. I was like, wow, that's, that's how you do it. That's, that's the way to go. And they asked him at the end of the interview, towards the end of the interview, when was the last time you voted? Now, this is 2020. Ken, what would you think was the last time he voted? He was fairly young, you know. Well, probably, if at all, before 2016. Oh, my gosh. 2008. I said everything that you're fighting for now, you just negated me supporting you with whatever you're putting out there, so to speak, because that was just dumb. That was just dumb that you haven't voted since 2008. And they said, are you gonna vote in the 2020 election? And he just looked like he had put the biggest foot in his mouth and he had realized it, which he had. Are you kidding? But it was the truth. Yeah. It was the truth. So many young people, and when I say young people, like the millennial generation (laughs) going from 16 to 30 some odd year old, they just, let things be. They're interested in what they want to do and their passion, but they don't understand that everything that's going on is going to impact you in a couple years and you're going to have to carry through for the generations and you're not going to know what to do because you don't even mobilize to vote and make sure that your voice is heard so that the passion can continue to go through and, and so forth. It's just very sad. Right. Everybody puts this in your head that your vote doesn't count or the election's not going to be based off of one vote. Every vote counts. Absolutely. And if, and and if not, showing... at least the action. And, and by the way, you know, <laughs> why would we disrespect our ancestors so much for what they sacrificed and died for for us to sit down at home and not vote? 
Right, absolutely. And ancestry in the entire movement, that civil rights movement, and you know the abolitionist movement um, to, to get rid of slavery and so forth, folks fought so hard and their lives were literally on the line and they lost their lives fighting. Just so that you can check a piece of paper. Are yes. you kidding me? And you don't do that? It's the realization of what it means, I think is lost. Yes. And, and community at large needs to understand that that there needs to be a greater education around that elections matter voting matters you yes. know and so i'm just hoping that we'll have a robust election this cycle i think we will um and i'm just hoping that there'll be a greater civility a greater humanity and a greater love and a greater justice out there and equity um you know, and equity by way of, like you said, one could have $100, another could have $100, but the resources, okay? So neither party has a job, but we both have $100, but you have a car, you can get to the job. And they say, mm -hmm. well, you have a bus, but you know, you could take the bus. Well, the bus doesn't run in certain places. Right. The train doesn't reach certain, no one thinks about that. Right. You know, I had a friend of mine say, you know, folks need to stop blaming people and the blame game never worked and it's not going to work now. People aren't blaming people. They want you to hear what they have to say. Things are not right. They're not equitable. There's a great disparity. There's a great disparity. And I mean, we could talk for hours on end about the disparity in getting loans and where you can live and who right. shows you the houses that are, you know, um, short sales or $400,000, which is a ton of money, but it's a million dollar home. Right. And some folks are getting them for 400,000, but you have to pay a million dollars. So now you're at a disadvantage already because your mortgage is twice that of that person, which means that you're going to have to work harder given the same hundred dollars to and make that mortgage. Yeah. And you probably make half the income as the other person too. Absolutely. <laughs> and that is statistically sound right. that black women make 67% of what a white person makes. That's crazy. Tim, when I was in corporate America, I had to do a scattergram on my income every year and I was not made privy to what a scattergram was, but I was made privy by a manager. I was always president's club and there was this guy that I was given to mentor and he's since gone on to be executive leadership at Morgan Stanley. So that can tell you the type of people were groomed in this corporation. And he came in and we just absolutely adored one another. He was white, I was black, I was to mentor him. And so I mentored him, I showed him the ropes and so forth. And we started talking, I said, Matt, what did they start you out with? And he told me what he started out with and I almost fainted. <laughs> I had been with the company for five years. He started as a trainee with more money than I was making on my base salary. Right. Give me a break. And I go to my manager and I said, um, I think that there are some people making more money. And she said, 
there are. And I said, no, not folks that are higher ranked than I am, that are lower ranked than I am. And she said, well, the best I can tell you, and don't tell them I sent you, is to go to Human Resources and request a scatter grant. And I did. Do you know what they did to my salary after that? It got bumped up almost $25,000 a year. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. And I had to watch it every year thereafter. Yep. Every year thereafter because I was a top performer. But I mean, things like that happen. And folks think that, oh, you've got the title. You're at President's Club. You guys are We're not making the same thing. No. And guess what? Some of these people aren't at President's Club. They aren't at Performance Award recognition status. They aren't. They're trainees. They've just come in. And they're making what folks at President's Club, if you're black or brown, are making. That's right. outrageous. That's outrageous. That's got to change. And I don't know how it's going to change, but it has to change because it doesn't level the playing field. And you're always going to get what we have in society if that continues to be the case. People don't understand that poverty is an all-consuming monster. With poverty, you're going to have crime. You've got all this disparity, disenfranchisement, and you've got drugs. You've got everything that's culminated in one area. It's and it makes it, it makes it difficult in that situation to raise your next generation of leaders. How do you? Everything is dysfunctional. Right. And it's going to stay dysfunctional unless the equity changes and the resources change. Absolutely. So, yeah. So with that, Tim, I think that we've had a great conversation. I don't know if you wanted to talk more about uh, the Blue Lives Matter movement and what your thoughts are on that versus the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, and then we can kind of just wrap it up. But I wanted to get your take a little bit on that and what you thought about um, that. Yeah, well, you know, police officers get killed too. I understand that. And, you know, saying Blue Lives Matter, uh, you know, as, as a counterpoint to Black Lives Matter, I think it creates a problem um, and basically, one says that I'm not concerned about your condition. I'm only concerned about mine. And let's face it, blue lives matter, white lives matter, animals' lives matter, yes. black lives matter. Yes. I think when we're saying black lives matter, we're not just saying that just black lives matter. We know that all lives matter, but we have to seem to give a reminder that ours matter as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's the takeaway. All these lives matter. But when you're disproportionately killed and when you've got gross disparity and equity, that matters to people. And right. so lives matter. And we must understand that if nothing else, but from a humanitarian standpoint, right. and a greater civility will come about. So... Thank you, Tim, for joining me uh, today. I really appreciate your input and your insight. I knew that it would be great having you on, uh, coming from you know an ex-police, a former police chief, a retired police chief, a police officer, and you were educated in the criminal justice system. So, your input is always valued, and I know you're objective and you think out of the box, and that's what we look for. We look for real talk, real news, real people all the time. With that said, thank you, Tim. I enjoyed you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And you have a great day. You too. Bye-bye.